violent prayer, engaging your emotions against evil by Chris Tigreen. Chapter 2, The Art of War, Contending for the Kingdom. The opening scene of Saving Private Ryan is gruesome. It depicts the Normandy invasion at its most intense moment of crisis, storming the beach in the face of German fire. The graphic scenes are disturbing, not only for the shock effect so often exploited in cinema, but also for the underlying awareness that this sort of violence really did happen that day. Something about seeing human carnage makes us groan more deeply for our redemption. Even so, our impulse when watching such a conflict is not for the good guys to retreat and save their lives, but for them to overcome and win. Deep down inside, we know victory will be worth the horrific cost. That moment of the Normandy invasion was critical. If Allied forces were able to establish a position on the shore, the battle against Nazi terror could continue and succeed. If not, the opportunity to resist that particular evil would have been lost for a long time to come. We'll never see what would have happened if the invasion had failed but the free world as we know it depended on that moment. This gruesome sliver of time had enormous implications. Critical Hinges Moments of time are like that, the small hinges on which huge doors of opportunity and victory often swing. We spend hours, days, months, even years in an apparent holding pattern in our lives, only to find suddenly that our whole future can depend on one brief moment of crisis. In these critical moments we often find are vigorously and brutally contested. Every war has such moments, intense battles that can strategically or emotionally swing the direction of the larger conflict one way or the other. Because of their decisive impact, their grueling and grisly nature is particularly memorable. The bloodiest battle of the American Civil War, the Battle of Antietam, is an example. Though neither side could claim a clear victory, the perception that Confederate troops were decisively thwarted from gaining Union territory led to the immediate draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, which turned the Civil War from a conflict about sovereignty into a conflict about slavery. As a result, Britain and France couldn't assist the Confederacy with a, without appearing to support the barbaric institution of slavery against a country that would abolish it. In a sense, the war was decided one brutal day in September 1862. That pivotal moment affected the course of the conflict 
for the next three years in the course of the nation forever. In World War II, the battle for Iwo Jima's airfields had similar impact on the Pacific Front, with the massive invasion of American troops and Japanese determination to hold every foot of land, even if only in caves and tunnels, the fighting was intense and casualties ran high. But the proximity of the airfields to Japanese-dominated regions made this strategic moment a make-or-break opportunity for U.S. forces. More than that, the image of Marines raising the American flag on Iwo Jima's Mount Suribachi is indelibly etched in our memories as a monument to in our memories as a monument to the Pacific Triumph. It reminds us that resolve, persistence, and a whole lot of guts are essential in winning critical battles. Even today, when geographic territory means much less strategically than it used to, economically insignificant tracts of land are still the subjects of heated controversy. India and Pakistan have been fighting vigorously for Kashmir, an oft-frozen piece of land between the two countries. Russia and Japan have argued for decades over the Kuril Islands, a cluster of volcanic fishing spots in the North, in the North Pacific. Both of these disputed territories are, at least on the surface, not worth the cost of war. They're small and modest in the resources, but, the, but to the people who live there, and to the countries that see them as their own territory, they're crucial. When you're involved in a fight, every inch matters. Life is full of pivotal moments of time and strategic inches of ground. Why? Because one brief moment or one territorial inch can have lasting impact on the course of a kingdom. What seems like a small seed today inevitably turns into a large tree tomorrow, whether for good fruit or for bad. We can apply that principle to our own lives or to the church at large. Either way, it's true, which is why Zechariah can rebuke whoever despises the day of small things. We live in a world where small things make big differences. That's why there's nothing casual about our lives. We can rest and relax at appropriate times, but we can never take a vacation from reality. We're citizens of eternity and ambassadors of the kingdom of destiny. There's immense joy when we, can, when we understand that and immense responsibility. Minor decisions can be major and instant reactions can have permanent results. We can't take them lightly. A Game of Inches Florence Nightingale said, Life is a hard fight, a struggle, a wrestling with the principle of evil, 
hand to hand, foot to foot, every inch of the way is disputed. Deep down we know it's true. We've all felt the frustration of running uphill, swimming upstream, or any other metaphor of our experience makes all too understandable. We struggle in life not only because we live in a fallen world, but also because we're resisted by citizens of a rebellious kingdom. There are evil personalities in the angelic realm that can make every square inch of our worship, spiritual growth, and outreach. Even our getting up in the morning and speaking words of encouragement to our family members a matter of intense combat. Our critical moments of decision and opportunity are not a walk in the park. Just ask anyone who is at Normandy or Iwo Jima. Even a thoroughly secular culture knows the importance of critical moments. The principle applies universally, not just to the kingdom of God. In the film Any Given Sunday, Al Pacino's character, a football coach, gives his team a speech before the big game. With the spirit that would have made Vince Lombardi proud, he stresses the importance of fighting for every inch. When you get old in life, things get taken from you. I mean, that's part of life. But you only learn that when you, you only learn that when you start losing stuff. You find out that life's this game of inches. So's football. Because in either game, life or football, the margin for error is so small. I mean one half step too late or too early, and you don't quite make it. One half second too slow, too fast and you don't quite catch it. The inches we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute, every second. On this team, we fight for that inch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch, because we know when we add up all those inches, that's what makes the deleted difference between winning and losing, between living and dying. I'll tell you this, in any fight, it's a guy who's willing to die who's gonna win that inch. And I know if I'm gonna have any life anymore, it's because I'm still willing to fight and die for that inch. Because that's what living is. Pep talks like that are the stuff of successful coaches and generals. They get the adrenaline pumping and maximize the potential of their hearers. But are they appropriate for the kingdom of God? Listen to Jesus. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men 
to encounter the one coming up against him and with twenty thousand. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Those are alarming verses when read without the hope and encouragement Jesus gives us elsewhere. They sound like the voice of a coach firing up his team in a pre-game speech, or a general preparing his troops for combat. It's as if Jesus is telling his disciples, This is going to be rough, you're in the battle of your lives, You'll pour out everything you've got, and some of you will die. This contest is brutal, but the victory will be worth it. Go and fight like men. He sounds like Al Pacino without the profanity. But it doesn't end there. Jesus promised his disciples that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Gates are defensive, shutting opponents out, so we can assume Jesus expects the church to be on the offensive. Picture a long-term siege of Jerusalem during the Crusades, or of Troy in Homer's Iliad, or of Minas Tirith in the Return of the King. Or better yet, picture the impenetrable walls of Jericho as the Israelites marched around them. Sometimes city sieges lasted for weeks or even months, and sometimes the, ga- the gates prevailed. Not so in Jericho, a story that reminds us how much we wish for power over walls. Our uh, opposition in life is sometimes like a city under siege whose gates refuse to get cave in. But Jesus gave his disciples one little phrase, a prayer to break those gates open. This prayer has more meaning than we've traditionally given it. We've used its words passively, but they're fighting words. A war cry that should be the rallying point of every single one of our prayer gatherings. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where night equals right. No, where might equals right. The essence of warfare is each side attempting to impose its will on the other. Theoretically, it's a last resort when no meeting of the minds is achieved. 
When disagreement persists and neither side is willing to compromise its territory, economy, values, or security, war is the only remaining option. In principle, when one side seeks to negotiate, the other side should agree to do so. But when one side is hostile and uncompromising and unwilling to negotiate, the other must respond in force. We're in a war and the other side is not willing to negotiate. Neither are we, truth be told. God never has and never will compromise with Satan. The cosmic conflict between God's kingdom and the demonic rebels will be settled only by a fight to the finish. We do not negotiate with terrorists, and God never asks us to. Nor is there any real reason for it. When Greek historian Thucydides chronicled the Peloponnesian War of the 5th century B.C., he regarded a dialogue between invading Athenians and the citizens of Melios that lays out the hard facts of a power imbalance. Toward the beginning of what could have been a treaty negotiation, the Athenians were rather blunt in their assessment, spurning any speci specious pretenses pretenses in justifying their actions, they moved on quickly to cold hard facts. You know as well as we do that right, as the world goes, is in question only between equals and power, while the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. What mattered was not which side was justified in its reasons for war, or what was reasonable or ethical. What mattered was who had more power. It's the classic expression of might makes right. And while as people of righteousness, we don't follow that principle in human relationships, we do need to apply it in prayer to our conflict with evil. We can be grateful that in our situation, right and might are on the same side. The Spirit is not only holy, He's powerful, the most powerful in existence. There's no reason to bow down to evil and rename it the will of God. We've been given an infinite source of strength. We've been given the authority of the Son of God, and we've been given a battle cry for the high, of the highest order. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done as it is in heaven. A Militant Mission Satan does everything he can to convince us he has more power than Jesus does, or at least that he has more power than what's accessible to us in Christ. He intimidates, he lies, he bullies, and he tries to give us a false picture of reality magnifying his own abilities and obscuring the wisdom, power, and love of God. He would love for our fears to undermine our faith in the cross of Christ and the victory that Jesus' blood secured. 
In short, he follows the job description Jesus gave him. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We live in a generation of Christians who are beaten down by the enemy without often experiencing the power of God, mainly because we've believed his lies and intimidation. We've accused to the hand of the evil one, thinking it's the hand of God. We get those mixed up often, and we've forgotten that we have more power. Jesus told us that the one living in us is greater than the one who's in the world. He also gave his disciples, and therefore us, authority over all the power of the enemy. That should be enough to convince us there's a power imbalance. And if we can learn to distinguish the will of the enemy from the will of God, we can exercise the strength we've been given. There's a scene in The Return of the Jedi that dramatically illustrates the position of a Christian. As the movie opens, Jabba the Hutt, a being who can best be described as an alien sumo wrestler with the personality of a Las Vegas kingpin, attempts to dispose of Luke Skywalker and his friends. He flies them out to a desert over an over an enormous hole in the sand. The hole is actually the mouth of the Sarlacc, an underground earth creature that eats whatever falls into it and spends a thousand years digesting it. As Jabba sits in the safety of his ship, with Princess Leia chained to him as a love slave and Luke on a gangplank over the Sarlacc's mouth, Luke warns Jabba to release them if he wants to live. And it's, it's an absurd statement on the surface as the slimy Jabba is in, an, is in a seemingly invincible position and the good guy is dangling over the literal bowels of the earth. But Luke has learned the power of the force and he has a plan. He knows how to suddenly disable his captors and free his band of underdogs. He knows where the willpower is, and he knows how to use it. We are in just a position. We are in just such a position. Satan hovers over us, threatening us with a pit of despair, reminding us that we live in a fallen world and that the power of evil is irrefutable. But we know something he wishes we didn't know. We can tap into the power of the one who put him to shame at the cross, disarming his cronies and humiliating them publicly in the unseen realm. All we need are the keys of the kingdom and the knowledge of how to use them. That's where the model prayer comes in. Jesus told us to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we get to the part about thy will be done, we usually interpret this as Jesus' instruction not to pray for our own will, but for God's. But why do we assume Jesus is speaking about God's will only in opposition to our own? Why not God's will in opposition to Satan's or anyone else's? In fact, 
it's all of those. And a comprehensive understanding of His will, as opposed to everything against it, will give us greater depth and zeal when we pray. Our misunderstanding of this prayer can undermine the sense of conflict we're to have in our communication with God. It's hard to get enthusiastic when we come to Him with only our own broken will, though that that's always appropriate. But when we can come to Him against a satanic agenda, His will and ours are united. We're in a cosmic war with an irrevocable commission and unwavering support from our commander. We know we have the army of the universe behind us when we oppose evil. That's empowering. Mark your territory. David came to the front lines to bring his older brothers some bread. He was splitting time between shepherding the family flocks and serving the men in battle. The same way we split time between trying to be fruitful for God and just making ends meet however we can. But one day, David carried an attitude with him to the front. He heard a nasty, overgrown Philistine taunting the good guys. In David's mind, Goliath wasn't just mocking the men of Israel, he was mocking the the army of God. And that was an evil of epic proportions. David was outraged. You probably know the rest of the story. While all of Israel's fighting men were intimidated by Goliath's defiance, David was too offended to be afraid. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Surprisingly, although no one should really be surprised when this happens, David's brothers and the king became the mouthpiece of the -the behind-the-scenes enemy. They played the role of the intimidator, accusing the shepherd boy of deserting his sheep, of making a pastime out of battle watching, and of being too small and insignificant to have visions of giant killing. David was a victim of friendly fire, and those stinging shots may easily remind us of the scare tactics leveled at us from time to time. David, of course, couldn't let the giant's taunts go uncontested. He was willing to fight for every inch, even for dignity, undermined by an insult, and to fight with his life on the line. He saw a threatening evil, something that stood in direct contradiction to the revealed will of God, and he took a stand against it. His outrage led him to the battlefield, and his knowledge of God's will led him to victory. This is a graphic picture of violent prayer. The Christian life is more than a daily grind of struggling through the trials and routines of existence. It's a constant series of Normandies, Iwo Jima's, and Antietam's in the spiritual realm. A nasty giant has risen up against the kingdom of God and is right this minute hurling intimidating lies and taunts at the body of Christ. 
At this very moment, his spear is wounding people and ravaging their lives. And somehow, he, was he has convinced us that he's operating under the ordination of God. He doesn't want us to know that God's infallible ability to use these things in our lives and God's willingness to allow them are not the same as God's endorsement of our enemy. Jesus, in telling his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come, was helping them not to blur the lines between kingdoms or to unwittingly give tacit assent to an evil agenda. He was training his disciples as warriors. He, th he told them to rally around the kingdom's cause and to aggressively pray that God's will be done and that it be done exactly as it is being done in heaven. If that doesn't get us up in the morning, nothing will. Think about it. How is God's will being done in heaven? Are people suffering through tribulations and tears, wondering when or even if God will ever take his heavy hand off of them? I don't think so. That's not how the Bible defines heaven. No, heaven is a pure expression of the kingdom of God, where there's no corruption, no agony, no abuse, no deception, no form of wickedness of any kind, and no more tears. There's joy and peace and love in that glorious place, and all the, those things we deeply crave, and it all flourishes there right now is an expression of God's will. That's the sort of thing we're urged, no, ordered, to pray for. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, this was the first request he included in his example. Why? Because this is the kingdom agenda. Thy will be done was never intended as a prayer to beat you into submission, though there's a lot to be said for submission. Jesus offered that line to give you a heavenly agenda, a focus and power to your prayers that are missing when we live a haphazard Christian life. In this fierce clash of kingdoms, we're not to be passive recipients of the woes of the enemy, resigning ourselves to evils clearly inconsistent with the environment of heaven. Were to choose sides, then be zealous for the side we chose. Were to pray violently against the enemy. An underdog's answer. When you see evil, what's your response? It's one thing to be outraged, quite another to step onto the battlefield with a slingshot and a few stones. As much as you'll feel like an underdog in the battles of life, of life, and all of us do. The power of all heaven is on your side. Jesus has assured you that the gates of hell will not prevail in your aggressive counterattack against satanic strategies. When he gave his disciples authority over snakes and scorpions and all the power of the enemy, he added a comforting clause. 
and nothing will injure you. I know he defines injure a little differently than we do, as evidenced by his enigmatic statement that some of us will be martyred, but not a hair of our head will perish. But this cosmic battle isn't about comfort or physical life and death. The costs and awards are much higher than that. You may feel like Luke Skywalker handcuffed and dangling over the gaping digestive tract of a hungry sarlacc, but the reality of the situation, which you can see only by faith, is that you've been grafted into a life that cannot be extinguished and a power that cannot lose. Your adversary may treat you with contempt and act as if he has the upper hand, but he know he d- he knows he doesn't. He can only hope to keep you in ignorance by blinding you to the power and purpose of the disciples' prayer. Haven't you ever wondered why thy kingdom come, thy will be done has become a robotic chant of people who don't realize its meaning? It's no coincidence. There's a war on, and this prayer is a heavy artillery. Someone doesn't want you to know how to use it. If you recognize this war's reality, here's what you can do. First, go to the front lines with an attitude. Like David, don't shrink from outrage when you see territory the evil agenda is pursuing. When an intruder is violating the rights of kingdom citizens, be ready to go in arms. It doesn't matter what the giant looks like, what weapons he holds, or how long he has been a warrior. What matters is the Athenians assured the millions is he who has the most power. In Christ, that's you. Second, don't sanitize your prayers. When Satan exposes a raw nerve, take it to God. The Psalms are full of raw nerves, and God never rebukes the pleas that spring out of them. Nowhere in the Bible does God tell people to banish their emotions or to clean up their prayers before spilling them out at his feet. Just the opposite, in fact. David's outrage led to God's glory and it helped establish the anointed king. Both in the short term, David himself, and in the long term, the Messiah. You may fear the prospect of appearing to be a fool before God, boldly claiming his power in places where you don't even know his will. But fear not. All through scripture, God honors bold faith, even when it's misguided over tentative fear. It's better to fall with passion than to stand with indifference. If your motive is pure, you're no fool in the eyes of God, even when your prayers are messy and raw. When you feel reluctant to challenge evil, remember that day when massive doors of glory swung on tiny hinges of righteous anger after a shepherd boy brought bread to the front lines. No one knew it then, 
but the consequences of this underdog's actions would have eternal implications. If he'd divested himself of his anger, that day would have faded into history unnoticed. Instead, the agenda of an evil giant was defeated, and the royal bloodline of a savior was established. In the process, we were given a startling picture of what Jesus did to Satan at the cross. By the most humble of means, he shamed and decapitated the adversary of God's people. Third, march through life like a marine on Iwo Jima. Your island may be small, but it's strategic. There will be tactical maneuvers and vicious counter-maneuvers, and any one of them can turn out to be a defining moment. Your mission is to claim territory, to storm, walk, or even crawl your way up the mountain and help plant a flag for the kingdom. When you see Satan at work, defiance is a godly response. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. That means that when shots are fired at you or your comrades, you have every right under the king himself to shout over the noise of artillery into the enemy's camp. No, God's will be done, not yours, not on my watch. When blood-bought territory is violated, you can command, No, God's kingdom come, not yours, not ever. Know the parameters of your mission well. You already have a list of things you're praying for. Develop also a list of what to pray against. Don't be afraid to live in the intensity of the battlefield. And never forget, when you're in a fight, every inch matters.